Our scripture reading today is from the 18th chapter of Luke. You heard a wonderful introduction to this parable already from uh, Mike Hegeman, and hear this now from the scripture. May God bless to us the reading of God's word. Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. In that city there was a widow who kept coming to him and saying, Grant me justice against my opponent. For for a while he refused. But later he said to himself, Though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice so that she may not wear me out by continually coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God grant justice to God's chosen ones who cry to God day and night? Will God delay long in helping them? I tell you, God will quickly grant justice to them. And yet, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Holy Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be receptive to thee. O God, our strength and our Redeemer, we pray. Amen. On December 6, 1907, an explosion in the Mananga coal mine trapped and killed 362 men. This remains the worst mining accident in American history. That single day left more than 1,000 children without fathers. The impact on nearby Fairmont, West Virginia, was enormous. All hope is gone, read a headline in the Fairmont Times. Grace Golden Clayton was a member of Fairmont's Williams Memorial Church at that time. She had lost her father about a year before, and as she reflected on her own loss, her heart was drawn to the families that were devastated by the Monongah disaster and the struggles that lay ahead for all of them. In response, she worked with the church to set aside a special Sunday that July for what she called Father's Day, a Sunday to remember and heal and pray and redouble efforts on behalf of those families who were suffering so. She may well have been inspired by one of the first Mother's Day services, which had been held just about 20 miles up the road just a couple of months earlier. A similar Sunday recognition of fathers, both of the joys and challenges of fathering, started just a couple years later in Spokane, Washington. Efforts from folks from Spokane led to services in Portland, then in Chicago, then in Miami. A woman by the name of Sonora Dodd took up the cause from there 
and was joined along the way by others until President Coolidge recognized the day in 1924. It took years for Congress to recognize the day. That came in 1956. And President Johnson recognized it 10 years later, and President Nixon made it permanent in 1972. It took a while. First, inspired by tragedy and grief and a desire to create space for gratitude and healing and compassion to redeem the time. And so another story, if you will, about today, which starts even earlier. On June 19, 1865, Major General Gordon Granger stood at what is now the corner of the Strand and 22nd Street in Galveston, Texas, and read General Order Number 3, freeing the last of legally enslaved persons in the United States. Now, this was already two months after the end of the Civil War. And this was already two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation was signed by President Lincoln. And this was already 89 years after the Second Continental Congress adopted the Declaration of Independence, declaring self-evident equality and inalienable rights. And this was more than 2,000 years after our Lord stood in a synagogue in Galilee and quoted Isaiah to declare the thrust of his ministry to declare liberty to the captives, to let the oppressed go free. On that date, July, or excuse me, June 19th, 1865, that date has come to mark the promise of liberty and freedom for African Americans through much turmoil, hardship, and resistance. It has sometimes been called Jubilee Day, Recalling the Old Testament day of Jubilee, when debts are canceled and society is reordered. It's been called Independence Day. It's been called Freedom Day. And it's also come to be known simply as Juneteenth. Celebrations spread all over the years, as you know, and none more joyful than in Texas. So, on Juneteenth, you may have heard this story in the last few days. On Juneteenth, 1939, Opal Lee, just 12 years old, celebrated with others. Opal is 94 today, but she still remembers those celebrations, and she remembers that night when her family home in a predominantly white neighborhood of Fort Worth was burned to the ground by a white mob and no one was ever held accountable. That experience in 1939 led Opal to a life of service as a teacher and an activist. Throughout her life, she organized Juneteenth celebrations, prayer meetings, and demonstrations in support of justice. And in her case, she organized to get otherwise indifferent officials, unjust judges perhaps, to recognize Juneteenth for what it is, 
a day to remember all that freedom means. Opal's been reminding, she's been intrusive, she's been nagging, she's been single-minded in her pursuit. Once a year, for years, she'd take a public walk of two and a half miles exactly, in memory of the two and a half years that slaves waited after the Emancipation Proclamation in Texas to be freed and to raise awareness and collect support for Juneteenth. Texas was the first state to officially recognize the day 40 years after Opal's family home was burned. By 2008, nearly half of all states recognized the day in some way or another. But in 2016, when Opal was 89 years old, she decided that she wasn't done. And she began a public walk from Fort Worth to Washington, D.C. in two and a half mile stints. She carried a petition with her, excuse me, for government action. And so in 2021, just last Thursday, as you know, we watched President Biden kneel to the floor in the White House to greet Opal Lee as she sat watching the signing ceremony for federal recognition of Juneteenth. Now, whether it was for political show or from the heart, I leave to you to decide. But what we do know is that this persistent person got her hearing and changed things for the better. And today, also Father's Day, is also the first Sunday of a new federally recognized Juneteenth holiday. I think we should call it Jubilee Sunday. For in light of our Lord's mission to bring liberty to captives and freedom to those who are oppressed, how can we not say that this celebration belongs to the church? It does. First, inspired by tragedy and grief and a desire to create space for gratitude, healing, and compassion, redeeming the time. And Jesus told a story that inspires both of the stories I just told you about and teaches us even more. A few weeks ago, I set for myself to preach on that story as one of two stories that Jesus tells one right after the other in the 18th chapter of Luke. I decided to preach the first one today and the second one next Sunday. I wasn't thinking of Grace Golden Clayton or Opal Lee when I selected this one for today, but I'm struck by how fitting this passage is for today. And you just heard it both described and read. The story is often called the parable of the unjust judge. It's also called the parable of the importunate widow. Importunate meaning being persistent to the point of annoyance. And in that vein, the story is also often called the parable of the persistent woman. 
Pick whichever title you like if you think it's important to name it. But no matter what you call the story, it is worth remembering that at its core, this story is not about us, but about God, just like most of Jesus' parables are. It is meant to remind us that if by sheer determination this woman got her hearing from a judge who didn't care one hoot, hoot about her, why in the world would we hesitate one minute? Why in the world would we hesitate one minute to take our condition and our concerns and our needs and our hopes and our calls for justice and our yearning to redeem the time to God. For unlike the judge of this story, our God knows us and loves us and is the very source of our healing. Why would we for one moment try to walk alone? But it's also worth remembering that the woman at the center of this parable is not a mere prop. She is there for a reason, or at least I think she is. I think she is there to show us the way, to evoke some thinking in us about how to live faithfully before this God who knows us better and loves us more than the powers of this world. Maybe this woman is a widow because the father of her children was lost in the Mananga mine explosion. Maybe the injustice she seeks is relief from the long, slow, burning effect of enslavement and its aftermath. Maybe her house was burned down by a mob for which she now seeks more than merely a replacement. Maybe she seeks something deeper now, something like reconciliation, repair, reparation, redemption. Maybe she wants to do God's bidding while she also does her own. At the center of this parable is an individual who lives not for revenge and not for reward and not for mere success. She lives instead from a simple importunate affection for what is right for what is genuinely worth sacrificing her reputation and her time and her effort for. You can call it principle. You can call it values. You can call it what Christians call righteousness. She's not driven by anger. She's not driven by arrogance. She's not driven by self-righteousness. She's inspired by hopeful persistence because justice is already achieved in God, so the good that we now do, we do because it is right, 
and not because we need to win. Am I reading too much into this little story? Maybe. But in light of the whole of Jesus' story and the life he gives us to live and how that life has been lived by so many through the ages, I don't think I am reading too much into this story. For at the center of this little parable, there is a glimpse of a faith that walks that remarkable line between our hearts as we rest in God and our bodies as we move in the world. Remember what Jesus says right after telling this story. And yet, he says, talking about himself, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Fill in the blank there and hear him say, will he find faith like this woman's on earth? This is the faith he wants to find. The importunate, hopeful, world-defying faith of this woman in this story. Savvy to the world, Confident in God, not cowed by power, not following the crowd, not worried for her own comfort, but willing to stand for what is good, to ask for what she needs, and to give the rest to God. This faith is already free before it makes any demands. It is willing to walk those two and a half miles over and over again, confident that one day, whether here or in the next life, we will cross that finish line. Faith like that is a gift. And more have it than we sometimes think. But let's get this right. Just being persistent isn't what makes this faith. Persistence might just be stubbornness and make you unteachable. And being in power like that judge doesn't destroy this faith necessarily. Having power of some sort might just make us responsible for something and maybe catch us up in systems that as hard as they might want to just can't finally deliver what they promised. A God-given, importunate faith begins first in connection with Jesus and then goes out into life, walking that line that I described between our hearts in God and our bodies in the world. And on that line, our task is always First, to pray. And that is where this kind of faith will come. To pray that your heart might not be too terribly divided between your desire for God and your desire for safety or comfort or success. And to pray that your body might not be too terribly distracted by the indifference or the emotions or the worries of life. And to pray that you might live your life as best you can 
pursuing goodness, caring about human flourishing and having your highest ambition to be sharing heartfelt love, or to put it another way, to live by gospel values. And pray for this, even while you tend to your life and do your work. That kind of prayer is the importunate prayer of a saint. And that can be your kind of prayer, too. It really can. I had a smart young man challenge me recently about living this way. Living by principle or values or prayer is fine if it makes you feel good, he said. But in the real world, where things are hard and bad things happen, he insisted, living that way doesn't get you what you want. Well, I guess it depends on what you want, I responded. I guess it depends on what you want. And there's the rub. Our widow sought justice in a world that couldn't care less about her. But her faithfulness wasn't in the seeking, nor was it in her righteous anger, or in fighting fire with fire, or in adjusting to things as they are. Her faith was in what Jesus saw in her, in her trust, and in the importunate, persistent, tenacious, unrelenting, calm but unyielding, teachable but passionate way of being that came from that trust. She wanted what God wanted. And that's what faith is. Whether in the smallest parts of our lives or the biggest things we take on with others, God doesn't ask us to succeed. God asks us to be faithful and gives us strength to be. God doesn't dispel all ignorance. God sheds light and gives us vision to find light. And God doesn't assure victory. God gives grace and power and enough of what we need to simply not give up no matter what. And that is the story. So as you go home today, think about the story of Grace Golden Clayton in West Virginia, or Sonora Dodd in Oregon, or think about the story of Opal Lee in Texas, or think about other people you've known who, trusting God, have taken steps of gritty, importunate faith to redeem the pain of life and build a little bit of God's kingdom. Small ways or big ways, they're God's ways all the same. So pray that we all might know that faith. Amen.